Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the media show coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Jack Fisher and tonight, the overseas court injunction that's preventing Australian journalists from reporting on a British sex scandal. Are China's journalists reaching breaking point under censorship? And it's just about on for July the 2nd, so how can we expect the Australian media to behave leading up to this year's federal election? Joining me in the studio is Kirsty Needham, state political editor at The Sun-Herald. Hi, Kirsty. Hi. And also in the studio, Fairfax contributing editor and freelance correspondent, Claire Stewart. Hi, Claire. Hello. And joining us on the line from the nation's capital, Josh Taylor from Crikey. Hi, Josh. How's it going? Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us via Twitter, you can do so at Fourth Estate AU or letters, no numbers. For several weeks now, media has been aching to report on a scandal involving Elton John and his husband of 23 years. The story goes something like this. Elton John's husband, Canadian David Furnish, has been having a long-time affair with British businessman Daniel Lawrence, and it involves a kiddie pool filled with olive oil. But due to a court injunction that Elton John has taken out in Britain, the British media have been silenced on the topic and the international media have been unusually quiet. Claire, what is an injunction? It's basically when something really terrible happens or is about to happen and you run to the court with your papers waving saying, please get the people to stop doing this or to rectify what they've done. Um, And in this instance, it's used, well, they went in to say, don't publish our names. It's going to be a bit of an issue. Uh, it's going to cause embarrassment to the children. Um, it might cause some kind of economic damage, but not really. So, yeah, it was granted on that basis. Can, can anyone apply, just apply for an injunction if they want it? Anyone can apply so long as they're at risk of suffering some kind of damage. So as long as you're involved in a contract with another party or that someone might be building something near your property or... In this case, with defamation, if someone's going to or has already written something pretty awful. Kirsty, what's been your experience with injunctions? Have they stood in the way of a lot of uh, great scoops? Personally, no, but I know um, for Fairfax, the organisation that I work for, we've always had a very um, clever and strong team of lawyers um, in-house to battle injunctions. They've um, they've always been there. Um, as um, the powerful um, politicians, corrupt businessmen try to stop journalists and particularly investigative journalists um, from publishing stories that they would rather not are out there in the public. So um, journalists, as part of their work, they have to make sure everything is accurate, that there's a public interest in um, what they're publishing and that things are legally watertight. And I I can remember back in the day, and this is before the internet because that changes things and I'm sure we'll get on to talking about that, but um, getting closer to the deadline and editors standing around in a huddle waiting um, for a response from the Supreme Court because someone has rushed their seeking an injunction or just trying to get the story out before um, the subject of a story can go to the Supreme Court and seek the injunction. Josh, what's been your experience with injunctions and have you ever come across one from overseas? Um, I, To be honest, like I haven't uh, reported on anything so far that has required an injunction. I, I tend to get the emails in my inbox saying you can't report about this, but it tends to be sort of after the fact that injunctions take place. There's been a couple of things where I've been in, sitting in court. For example, um, I remember a few years ago there was, um, uh, I think it was one of the uh, Apple Apple cases a couple of years ago where they started talking about stuff that was um, c- commercially confident and stuff they wanted to keep under wraps and I started tweeting about it and then they said um, 
oh no, this is actually commercially incompetent. You, well, this needs to, you know, we need to take this out, and, and media need to know not to report about this. Thankfully, I hadn't tweeted the, the parts that um, were quite sensitive, but uh, it's just that, that kind of thing you've got to be always conscious of. You know, you never know what might be um, decided to be restricted after you've after you've already heard about it. <laughs> So, Claire, if an injunction only applies within a certain geography, as Elton John's injunction does, what is its value in the age of the internet? Very little would be the argument. I think the idea that newspapers and online magazines in the US and even in Scotland have actually published all of the details about um, this story indicates that, I mean, yeah, injunctions are kind of over, really. I mean... Even in Australia, we can see the newspapers here, news.com.au, and also Fairfax being a little bit sensitive about putting up details of it. And that might be because of um, some fear that they might be read online in the UK. Um, with news.com, it might be because they have a very close affiliation with the guys that actually broke the story. You just don't know. That sort of comes down to editorial judgment a little bit, but certainly you can't um, be prosecuted outside your jurisdiction. Kirsty, what do you think an injunction is worth now that uh, anyone outside a certain jurisdiction can just post about it online, blog about it even? Well, I think this is a really um, interesting decision. We, we think that the injunction is about to be lifted overnight. Um, there was a decision earlier this week in the UK. And what the judges there said essentially was, hang on, half the people that you're trying to stop reading this have already read it in the in- on the internet. And the point of an injunction is that it's about practicality. It's whether something can be stopped from being published in this case, it was too late. Um, people through social media um, had, had access websites in Canada and America and um, a lot of surveys have been done this week in Britain and I think they found one in four people um, actually know the identity um, of Elton John and his husband. And we've actually found this in Australia too recently. Um, I, I just remembered there was recently a case... Um, there's been an ongoing saga in Australia with um, ICAC and um, Margaret Canine, um and... We've had various parliamentary inquiries. Um, There was an incident earlier this year where um, details of a phone tap or a transcript of a phone tap um, that had been conducted on Margaret Canine's phone had leaked out um, at the same time as a group of politicians had been um, given this transcript um, in Parliament. Now, the, the... Newspapers very quickly, all at once, um, publish these stories on the internet at the same time. And I'm not sort of breaking any confidences here because it was reported at the time. Margaret Canine's lawyers issued threats of injunctions to the newspapers. And back in the day, if there was a daily deadline, that might have been enough to um, to stop a newspaper to look at the legal ramifications. But in this case, it was already out there. People had already read it. The news cycle is so fast now um, that um, going to a court, getting an injunction, well, the horse is bolted. People have read it. And in fact, the lawyers didn't proceed with that threat. They didn't carry it out. And I think they probably knew themselves um, that anyone who wanted to read that had already read it on the internet. Josh, I'll come to you. What has the internet done to injunctions? Are they still worth anything? I think it's just accelerated what was already happening. I mean, I don't know if anyone remembers, but in the 90s, there was the the, um, the Blue Murder case and, and, and a lot of stuff about that being reported. It couldn't be reported in uh, in New South Wales, uh, but it was, it was you know, it was screened in Victoria um, and people just got VHS copies shipped up to them and that's basically how they got around that. And then that, that happened again with, um, with the first season of Underbelly, I think it was, where it couldn't be screened in Victoria, but... You know, within a few hours, it was on torrent websites and things like that. So people were able to get it very, very easily if they wanted to. And the fact that there was an injunction on it, I think, did actually make people want to find out more about it because obviously, if it's something that the courts didn't think was worth seeing, then 
oh, maybe there might be something interesting. And I think it was actually really good publicity for the show. Claire, I've noticed that the Sydney Morning Herald's uh, Europe correspondent has reported this story without reference to Elton John or his, his partner directly. And it seems that News Corp have put a story up about it and now it's been pulled down. So what have they got to be fearful of here? That's an excellent question. Kirsty and I were talking about this earlier in regards to whether there might be some kind of punishment able to be meted out to someone who is linked to over there. But it would be a question of whether the UK courts then want to hunt down Australian journalists who published in Sydney and that was read by someone in the UK. So they don't actually have any legal rights to kind of come out here and chase us down. But that's where it gets incredibly blurry and it's a very, I mean, it really is an incredibly grey area. It's intriguing, isn't it? Because perhaps it could be um, that our correspondent is based in the UK, so therefore he could be breaching it. Um, we're also talking about the fact that the Herald's got a readership in the UK. and But it, the reverse argument's actually been made by some small um, English publishers who've said, well, actually, these days we don't physically publish a paper. Our servers are based in the US. And the person who wrote it was in, I can't remember where it was, it was might have been Ireland or somewhere outside the injunction. So therefore, even though the bulk of their readership was in um, the UK, um, they argued that, hey, we're not breaching the injunction. It's yet to be seen whether the courts are going to chase that small publisher. Mm. Um, but it's, it's, it's all new ground, isn't it? Yeah. And I think the other thing to remember about injunction is that while we talk about them as if they happen all the time, they don't. It is an incredibly high watermark in Australia to seek a defamatory injunction. You have to prove a lot of stuff. You have to prove that the story is not justifiable, that it's actually going to cause harm in the first place. It's A lot of people seek them. They're not very regularly granted so you know it's not sort of something that happens every couple of days and do we know if they're as easily um if if it's as easy to apply for an injunction overseas or whether there's the same uh whether journalists take to it the same over there the um the uk used to have very similar laws uh to australia until they were absorbed into the eu and they now have the human rights act or the charters over there that um allows them uh, this idea of privacy which is what um elton john went to went there in the first place about. And Australia doesn't have that, so we don't have a tort of privacy here. We but. don't at the moment, but it's interesting that that tort of privacy was actually brought up by... There was a New South Wales parliamentary inquiry into serious intrusions into privacy this year, and they actually have proposed that the state government or the federal government should look at a similar... Um, action mm. here. Um, they said that the UK has the most um, far-reaching laws and have been they've been used extensively by celebrities. And I think it was Naomi Campbell that set the case law over in the UK that you know Elton John is now sort of um, oh. riding on her coattails. But in New South Wales, they've recommended that um, there be some kind of action um, for a serious invasion of privacy. Though they're framing it, or they would like to frame it to be more about revenge porn, social media, big data, rather mm. than um, sort of traditional tabloid intrusions into celebrities, but it'll be really interesting to watch this space and see whether we head down that path um, that, that Britain has taken. Yeah. I think a few times it's come up federally and, and uh, George Brandis, the Attorney General, hasn't really expressed that much uh, interest in, do, in pursuing it. A lot, of, a lot of people bring it up a, a lot of the time and it just kind of gets shrugged off because I think um, the most recent one was the Australian Law Reform Commission looked into it a few years mm-hmm. ago and the government essentially has responded now. They've got a, um, a piece of legislation which is about mandatory data breach notification, which is if, if companies accidentally leak your data, they actually have to tell you about it, but nothing really on the front of uh, you know newspapers reporting about you and you know, things you don't want out in the public. Well, this is all very, very interesting from a legal standpoint, but let's be real. Is there any real public interest aspect to Elton John's husband being named in this scandal, Claire? No. I mean, really. 
Kirsty? I can't see the public interest. I can't see the public interest in them being named. I can't see the public interest in them being not named. It's um, yeah. It's just bizarre. If anyone wakes up in the morning and takes an interest in this kind of story, they've got a few questions to ask. <laughs> Josh, will okay. you defend this reporting? <laughs> no, but um, I think someone, someone, I've heard someone say once that, uh, you know, it's always the worst cases that are, are the most interesting from a legal perspective. So from that from that point of view, in a, even though none of us have any interest in, in the story whatsoever, um, in terms of testing the legal uh, boundaries of it, is it is quite interesting on that on that basis. Don't injunctions just attract more attention to a story sometimes? Claire? Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No. Well, I, I mean, I hadn't even clocked this story until <laughs> until you told me about it yesterday, and I went, "Oh, that's yes, good point." Yeah. It's um, this is, people are talking about this all over the world. The story has been published all over the world, except for Britain. It's about to be published in Britain. Um, if that, the, the Sun's original story had it been published on the day, would never have attracted that publicity. No. Josh, would Elton John have just been better off ignoring this? I think so. It's the same. What they call the, the Streisand effect. You know, essentially, if you um, if you draw attention to something, then it's going to bring a lot more attention to it. I, I mean, the obvious example that I can think of is, is with defamation law and, and the Chris Kenny ABC case where, um, you know, now he's known for, for that case and, and it's something that people often bring up to him, even though he got a settlement from the ABC. I don't know if the, um, I guess the cost or to his reputation was actually worth pursuing that defamation action in the first place. Mm. This, of course, is, as far as I understand, an injunction, but not a super injunction, which would be when the injunction itself can't actually be reported on. Kirsty, does that make a huge difference to journalists? Are they perhaps having fun with the intrigue of it all? I think they're absolutely having fun with the intrigue of this one, especially in the day of you know the age of Google search and you know throwing out clues and looking at some looking at some of the British reporting online today. The comments, the readers are having a lot of fun with it. Just really cryptic um, games that they're playing, just inadvertently mentioning Elton, Elton John in their comments. Um, yeah, it's it's turned into a, a giant quiz, a game show. One of the best um, subs had put on one of the UK things, they had a, a silhouette of a very attractive young man and they had underneath the people involved in this are nowhere near as handsome as this image looks. <laughs> and it's like, that's, I mean, that's what they can do. It becomes a big joke. You're listening to Fourth Estate with myself, Jack Fisher, and I'm joined by Kirsty Needham, Claire Stewart and Josh Taylor. Now, it appears media controls are tightening under China's President Xi Jinping. On a recent visit to Chinese media outlets, he sought to remind journalists that they lived to serve the government. Kirsty, you've worked as a journalist for a Chinese media outlet some 10 years ago, I believe, and experienced censorship firsthand. What was that like, and do you think anything's changed? There is a crackdown on it at the moment, um, but to some extent it hasn't changed that Chinese media's always operated under those rules. I worked for China Daily, um, which um, is actually the newspaper that sent the stern warning to Malcolm Turnbull as he arrived in Beijing um, last week not to you know, make contentious comments about the South China, South China Sea. Um, when you worked there, particularly I was a foreign expert, um, so it's a, it's a newspaper that's published in English um, to send the Chinese government's message, I guess, to the diplomatic community, the business community. Um, I was there to polish the English, um, but we were given a style guide when we first started, and it was basically just the manual of the politically correct um, definition of Tibet the Dalai Lama, how to refer to Taiwan, um, foreign relations, um, the golden rules of um, what a Chinese um, publication should say. The 
the censorship is quite extensive, but a lot of it relies on self-censorship by Chinese journalists, um, that they know what it is that they can and can't write about. At that time, there were some freedoms allowed in business reporting, um, some freedoms allowed in social issues, but when it came to government policy or political leaders, you just didn't go there. Every journalist had to be a member of the Communist Party. The Communist Party um, had an office on site. In fact, the editor-in-chief was a member of the Chinese Congress. Um, there was external monitoring all the time. So we had a, a daily newspaper, a business paper and a, a teen paper. And even the teen paper um, would get into trouble and be sent off to Marxist journalism um, retraining um, to learn about um, this is the way Chinese journalism is done. It's not like Western journalism. And that, that was a problem because more and more middle class Chinese now are studying overseas. They're studying in America, in Britain, in Australia at the top universities. They're consuming Western media. They might even do media courses here even at UTS. And they take those ideas back and get jobs in, in the media and it really conflicts with what they're expected to do um, as a journalist for a Chinese publication. And as a Western journalist in China, did you experience that problem not only to your job but also to your right to stay in China or your security? Yeah, to get in in the first place um, was difficult to to work there within a, a Chinese government paper. Um, I was initially rejected um, because I was also a Western journalist. Um, when I was given clearance to do it, they were very suspicious of my interactions with um, the Sydney Morning Herald, for example. I had to take leave without pay. Um, they frowned upon me visiting our Beijing correspondent over there. I had to live within the compound where the newspaper was published. Um, and there was a lot of scrutiny of my phone calls and, and my emails. And certainly for Western journalists working over there, um, there's, you know, just routine um, Centering of, not censoring, but, you know, monitoring of emails, who you interview, what you do. Um, but it's interesting at the moment, not so, I guess Western media operating in China, sort of, it's it's part of the job, it's part of the scene. It's more concerning is what's happening at the moment with Xi Jinping's crackdown on Chinese journalism. Um, it's come because he has amassed a great amount of power. He is, he's... There's been a big corruption, anti-corruption campaign at the moment, which is seen as actually him wiping out his political opponents. So there's a sense that there probably is quite a lot of dissent under the lid there. And in response to that, he is um, coming down with a sledgehammer on newspapers, on um, television stations, on magazines. He made a... T not only um, is his message that the party line must be towed being... Um, conveyed to editors, but he actually did a sweep of newsrooms and sort of was photographed and filmed talking to journalists and talking to editors and reminding them that they are part of the Communist Party family and they're expected to toe the line. This is the interesting dilemma when you talk about um, Chinese media censorship. On the one hand, the sledgehammer comes down, but it doesn't, I don't think it breaks the spirit of the journalists. So in response to that tour, we saw um, prominent editors um, resigning. We saw attempts to subvert the system um, with um, sort of cryptic headlines being placed into into newspapers with open letters of dissent being circulated on um, government websites. Um, and there's this cycle. So I wouldn't be dispirited at the moment um, because Chinese journalists are quite resilient and they seem to always find a way um, to fight the system, um, to sort of continue on with their push for sort of breaking breaking the rules and, and getting the story out there. What do you reckon it would take um, to break them? What would, what would the tipping point be? This, 
They're really resilient so and there's cycles. So um, at the moment, um, there's been a lot of publicity about the Southern Metropolis editor resigning. Now, that's, that's an interesting newspaper. It's actually privately owned. It's not government owned, um, but has to submit to the censorship laws. But they've had a whole tradition of um, editors being sacked editors um, resigning in protest and then a whole generation, another generation of journalists come up. They just, they keep batting them down um, with mallets and more journalists just keep popping up. Um, I'm more interested in the moment at what's happening on social media though, because Chinese, the Chinese newspaper industry, television industry is going through the same, um, I guess, change that we're seeing here in Australia, that more younger people are actually consuming their news um, online and through social media. And how does the the Communist Party control that? Um, And unfortunately, the answer is pretty effectively. Um, They can sort of automate censoring um, technologies. They can filter. Um, But that seems to be um, a really interesting space at the moment um, for journalists as well. Josh, the ABC's Chinese language service, Australia Plus, has come under fire lately for basically kowtowing to China's strict media rule. The ABC says the Australia Plus portal serves as soft diplomacy. Why is it important for the ABC to be doing that? It's actually in their charter to uh, to be uh, a soft diplomacy service, so they're essentially doing what they're um, required to. I think I think they basically said that you know the the, uh, the stuff that's on their website. It, it is that soft diplomacy, but it does link back to ABC's regular work on abc.net.au and and all that sort of stuff. So I, I don't. I think they're, they're probably doing what's what's within their charter and what they can get away with. I think um, the ABC is in an interesting position because obviously they have what they have to do in Australia, and, and everyone sort of expects the company when they whichever part of the world, whatever audience they're they're appealing to, to uh, uphold um, Australian editorial guidelines. And I think it's probably a little bit harder to, to do that if you're serving a, a Chinese audience within China. And I think that, that ABC is essentially doing what uh, a lot of other corporations do when they get into China, or a lot of Western corporations do when they get into China, is essentially toe the line. It's not any different to to what Facebook and what a lot of these other companies, Google, what a lot of these other companies do in order just to service that, that massive market within China and the massively growing market within China uh, for online services. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not at all surprised about about uh you know what abc is doing there i guess the thing i think it's the thing to watch is that uh you know they did lose the the um australian network contract uh, a couple of years ago that that uh was a big component of their um i guess their soft diplomacy uh, now and they're, they're trying to make it up here and there where they can but it's obviously not the same i, I would be interested to see if, if you know uh, a sky news or an organization like that does go into china and, and what sort of reporting they would do within there to a, a Chinese audience and whether it would be, um, I guess, similarly uh, different just in order to be able to access that market. You're on Fourth Estate with myself, Jack Fisher, and I'm speaking to Kirsty Needham, Claire Stewart and Josh Taylor. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has confirmed that Australians will likely go to the polls in a double dissolution election on July the 2nd. So what can we expect from the Australian media during this election period, Claire? Look, a lot of excellent reporting from new guys like the Batuta Advocate, I think, is uh, who we'll be looking at. Although I shouldn't say that sitting next to Kirsty. <laughs> She's a political boffin. Um, I, I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, the, the satirical take appeals to a lot of people, given we've been through such an extraordinarily long period of ridiculousness um, in many of the parliaments around Australia. Um, yeah. Kirsty, what are you looking forward to? Look, I think that's an interesting point, the satirical take, because if you look at what's happening, um, the tr- if, we, if we take our trends from overseas, I remember after the Obama election um, campaign, um, 
all the um, the political party hacks that have been volunteering over there rushed back to Australia and said, right, you know, we've got to use uh, Twitter, we've got to get online, we've got to get out the vote, um, even though you don't actually have to get out in the vote in Australia because it's compulsory. Um, so let's have a look at the US primaries at the moment. Snapchat, apparently, is what all the kids like. So um, uh, we haven't seen much about Snapchat and politics here. Will we see it? But we have, have we had a, a, a federal election here with um, BuzzFeed um, with the prominence that it has now? I don't believe I don't we have. No, so that could be really interesting. And then you have the mainstream media. Am I allowed to say mainstream media when I'm in the mainstream media? Anyway, like trying to sort of own that space as well. So um, satire, humour, finding ways to engage um, a digital audience with, with the politics because, my goodness, if we take up the themes that the Prime Minister has offered for the, the, the election, the ABCC, what? Really? Yeah. Like, do they, do they really think the Australian Building Construction Commission and their ideological war against the unions is really going to matter to the man in the street? I don't think so. It's election winning. <laughs> Josh, are the Australian media better or worse placed than ever to report this election period? I, I think we've got a lot more material to work with. I mean, you know, we've had social media elections before, but obviously now that's where most of the politicians are and that's where they live. And, and I think that they, a lot of the time they will now attempt to bypass the media entirely and just go straight to the, the people they're speaking to. But I guess particularly for those who don't have a profile, they still need to um, to have, you know, do their do their BuzzFeed interviews and do their, you know, what, what something that will catch, catch the attention of, of news websites to be able to, uh, I guess, get their message across. So I think we're in a, in a much better position um, to, I guess, make sense of it a bit more. I, I agree that the ABCC is probably the most boring thing in the world to go to an election on, although if you speak to some liberals, they would disagree with you on that. But I, I think that um, it's it's we've got, what I think it's going to be a 10-week campaign altogether. Um, we're not even going to be in caretaker mode until, you know, sometime mid-May. So I think... We're going to have a lot to work with, but I think that a lot of the media and a lot of the public in general are just going to be bored by the end of it because they just want to get it over with. So I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. And Josh, just quickly, it seemed 2013 was the year of the fact-checking unit, perhaps. We're looking forward to BuzzFeed and satire on this end. Is anyone shaking up the coverage this year down in Canberra? I think we'll probably see more of those fact-checking things. I think a lot of people are paying attention uh, in particular because the Senate voting reform stuff went through uh you know, just before the the double dissolution was was kind of hinted at, I think that um, I think everyone will be wanting to pay attention to how that will all pay out, and I think there'll be a lot more focus on the, on um, how the Senate voting system is going to work. Especially, I mean, there's a high court case to actually decide whether it can go ahead or not. Um, so I think that uh, the way that the Senate voting goes, people there'll probably be you know the, you've got Nate Silver in, in the US doing a lot of those calculations, and, and you've got um, a lot of polling companies. There's Metapol, the company that does um, you know sort of the, an analysis of the polling. I think those will be yeah. probably the big things in our election this year. Well, that's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Thank you to my guests, Kirsty Needham, Claire Stewart, and Josh Taylor. Thank you, panel. Don't forget you can subscribe to Fourth Estate on iTunes or SoundCloud or your podcast player of choice. And of course, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook and at 2SER.com. My name's Jack Fisher, and you can catch us at the same time next week.